I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Food allergies have increased dramatically around the world. Reactions range from hives to life-threatening anaphylaxis. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Most people are aware that peanuts can cause frightening reactions for some children. Other foods that can trigger allergic reactions include shellfish, eggs, soy, nuts, and wheat. What other foods might cause problems? Do we have any idea why food allergies are more common? Is there anything we can do to prevent them? Dr. Edwin Kim is an expert on food allergies. He's ready to answer your questions about preventing and managing them. Our lines are open at 888-472-3366. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, dealing with food allergies. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, many people think that COVID doesn't affect children very much. Young people are less vulnerable to serious consequences of the infection compared to older adults, but that doesn't mean they are immune to complications. An international team of analysts has reviewed U.S. mortality statistics from August 2021 to July 2022. During that year, COVID-19 ranked fifth in disease-related deaths among Americans aged 0 to 19. The coronavirus caused more deaths among kids than any other infection. The investigators point out we should still be trying to limit transmission of this virus to children, because it continues to be a serious health problem. About 30% of children with epilepsy do not respond well to available medication. However, children with drug-resistant epilepsy sometimes benefit from dietary therapies. A systematic review and meta-analysis of 12 randomized controlled trials was just published in JAMA Pediatrics. It compared ketogenic diets to less restrictive diets such as low glycemic index therapy and a modified Atkins diet. All dietary interventions were more effective than usual care. The modified Atkins approach was better tolerated and reduced seizures by 50% or more. The authors conclude that it may be a sounder option than a strict ketogenic diet. Youngsters on the ketogenic diet had more digestive distress, lack of energy, and elevated cholesterol levels. Do you drink your coffee black, or do you prefer a splash of milk? Danish scientists have analyzed two of the most important polyphenols in coffee, chlorogenic acid and caffeic acid. When these polyphenols interact with the amino acid cysteine in test tubes, they form a chemical complex. In the laboratory, this combination significantly dampens inflammation in specially treated immune system cells. The amino acid cysteine is found in milk and certain other dairy products, so the researchers wondered if this interaction would be relevant outside the laboratory. They confirmed that commercial coffee drinks with added milk do contain the complex. In addition, they suspect that this type of beneficial interaction between polyphenols and amino acids likely occurs in other foods, such as smoothies with dairy products. 
Besides the coffee polyphenols, foods such as berries, apples, pomegranates, and nuts are rich in polyphenols that have anti-inflammatory activity. When people suspect that they're having a heart attack or some other serious health event, they head for the nearest emergency department. They expect a prompt diagnosis and appropriate care. That's not always the case, according to an analysis in JAMA titled, quote, Misdiagnosis in the Emergency Department, Time for a System Solution. An exhaustive systematic review of emergency department visits and diagnostic error concludes that as many as 350,000 patients suffer disability or death each year as a consequence. The authors note that diagnostic errors are largely invisible to patients and their families and call for greater transparency. Because healthcare professionals are human and fallible, system solutions offer the best way to reduce diagnostic errors efficiently. The authors suggest reducing overcrowding and utilizing checklists, machine learning, cognitive aids, and better access to advanced imaging. Obesity has been linked to a number of serious health conditions. Researchers have documented higher rates of hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, and certain cancers as body weight increases. Now, scientists suggest that brain scans of people with Alzheimer's disease and those of people with obesity show similar patterns. The analysis is based on MRI scans of more than 1,300 individuals. These scans showed loss of gray matter in people with Alzheimer's disease. Those with obesity had a very similar loss of gray matter in their brains. The authors proposed that weight management might slow down cognitive decline in aging and reduce the risk for Alzheimer's disease. So far, though, scientists have not conducted randomized clinical trials to test this hypothesis. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. I'm a medical anthropologist. And I'm Joe Graydon. I'm a pharmacologist. Today, we're talking about dangerous food allergies. It's estimated that 15 million Americans now have food allergies. This is a dramatic increase over past decades. And it's not just peanuts. People are allergic to milk, eggs, shrimp, walnuts, wheat, sesame, and soybeans, and that's just for starters. How can you find out if you're allergic to a particular food? And what can you do to prevent a life-threatening reaction? We're delighted to welcome Dr. Edwin Kim to the studio to answer your questions about dangerous food allergies. Dr. Kim is Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's also Division Chief of UNC Pediatric Allergy and Immunology and Director of the UNC Allergy and Immunology Fellowship Program. In addition, Dr. Kim is Director of the UNC Food Allergy Initiative. Welcome, Dr. Kim. Hi. It's so nice to have you in our studio, and we want to welcome our listeners. Do you or someone you know have a food allergy? What's it been like? Have you had any scary episodes that might have required emergency treatment? Our lines are open at 888-472-3366. You can email us, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. 
That number again, 888-472-3366. Tell us what it's like to live with food allergies. Well, Dr. Kim, we're going to ask you for your own story first. You have all this medical specialization. You've studied food allergies, immunology, all that stuff. So what was it like for you when your own baby developed a food allergy? That's a great question. So it was um, life-changing, I would say. So in my case, uh, I was already studying food allergy, and then uh, we were introducing peanut to my now middle son for the first time. He was about nine months at that time, which uh, at the time was considered to be early uh, introduction at that point time, many people were sort of holding off on introducing things like peanut because of concern for food allergy. And um, I knew exactly what I was doing because, of course, I you know, designated a certain time we're giving peanut, peanut butter. Um, and as soon as, you, as soon as I started to give some of the peanut, then to start to see some of the skin reactions happening instantly and uh, just the, the many thoughts going through my head were... Um, yeah, again, life-changing. So immediately there's sort of this denial that happens that I know what this is, but I'm not believing what I'm watching. And um, and then ultimately we uh, ended up treating, and he had the, the full full sort of sequence of, of symptoms that people are concerned about. So head to Tell toe. us what those are. Sure. So he had head-to-toe rash, um, an itchy rash, which we call hives. He also had... Um, vomiting, and then he ultimately had coughing, which represents possible breathing problems as well. So different parts of his body were all reacting and ultimately got epinephrine, which is that life-saving medicine that did help for him. That had to be scary. I mean, here you are, (laughs) an immunologist, an allergist, and a pediatrician, and now all of a sudden, right before your very eyes, your son is beginning to have a serious allergy. So how did you incorporate that into now your life experience because up until then you've just been seeing patients. Now it was personal. That's exactly right. So um, uh, having been talking to so many families with food allergy, many of them had been sharing their life experiences, things that they had to deal with at the schools, at the daycares, and suddenly my brain was trying to remember everything I could possibly uh, think of that was taught to me. And really, I think it has changed my approach to food allergy because now I'm not only the doctor, I'm the researcher, but I'm also the parent. And so I'm not shy to share our experience as well, which is imperfect. Uh, we try to do the same avoidance and things that others do. But um, again, we're all fallible. So um, I, I hope that that uh, helps families to, to relate. And then all of us as a team can try to get to how do we make this better. Let's do some definitions. What is a food allergy, and how is it different from a food sensitivity? Yes, thank you, Terry, because I do think that that's an essential piece here. So um, what I try to be clear with my patients about is all kinds of things can happen when you eat a food, Uh, and only a subset of those are the ones that I would refer to as allergy. So when I speak of allergy, what I'm thinking about is your immune system actually reacting to a food and then causing a a whole body-wide type of reaction, And if the reaction is severe enough, it could be called anaphylaxis. But what's key about food allergy and food allergy type reactions is they should be immediate. So these are going to be things where you eat that peanut, you eat that shrimp, and then usually within minutes, so maybe 10 to 15 minutes at most, you're going to start to have the onset of symptoms. 
perhaps occasionally it'll last, it'll take a little longer, maybe an hour or so, but these are not reactions that come on the next day or the next week. Um, they come on rapidly, and then typically uh, they will go away pretty quickly too, so not symptoms that last for many days. Now, there is an exception to what you've just said. It's what we have learned about called alpha-gal allergy or a reaction. And so this is something that we first heard about, what, Terry, about a decade or so ago, maybe almost 15 years. And um, Dr. Thomas Platts-Mills up at uh, University of Virginia in Charlottesville pointed out to us that some people develop a reaction to tick bites. And after they've been bitten by a lone star tick, they may be, quote unquote, allergic to meat. But it doesn't happen instantly. It can happen hours later, like you wake up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning and now you're in trouble. That's right. So alpha-gal has uh, really forced us as allergists to go back and under, uh, rethink what we understood and accepted for food allergy. And a couple colleagues of mine, Dr. Scott Cummins and Oni Iwala at UNC, are leading the charge here at UNC along with others like Dr. Platts-Mills to try to understand this. We do think that the immune reaction that is happening for alpha-gal is the same, but as you say, in this case, it does seem to be several hours after the ingestion, which is unique and, again, an opportunity for us to just really try to understand what's happening at the immune system level. If you'd like to join the conversation, our number is 888-472-3366. You can email us, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. And we go to James in Endicott, New York. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, James. What's your question? Yes. Um, I was very curious to know, I am in my 70s, and is it common that you may develop an allergy that you may never have had to so a food? Is this something that's happened to you? Yes. I have been having a, I, I love, absolutely love eating eggs, but I've been having a very difficult time with my stomach. So, Dr. Kim... And I didn't know if I developed an allergy to them. Well, let's find out. Dr. Kim, we think of food allergies as a, a problem of young kids, like, like and, your baby. And after all, you are a pediatrician, but hopefully you can answer James's question. Yeah, I'll do my best. So, uh, James, again, a fantastic uh, question that does come up very frequently. And what I would uh, say is, like Joe mentioned, uh, most of the food allergies that we're going to see newly developing are going to be in kids, but absolutely adults can develop food allergies. If I'm thinking about adults, the more common foods that they may become allergic to in adulthood might be more in the seafood area. So um, fish and shellfish, alpha-gal, like Joe had just mentioned as well. Egg is one that we classically do think of as a childhood-type allergy developed in childhood, and actually, thankfully, most kids outgrow it in childhood. Now, I think James was talking about eggs, but I wonder about milk and dairy. Is that something that can be a problem for people as they get older? Another great question, and, and milk would follow that same pattern of eggs. So really there we would see um, most people who would become allergic would do this in early childhood, and thankfully, we do think that the majority of these will outgrow it. And I guess when we think of milk, that would be more of a food sensitivity, uh, lactose intolerance, perhaps. No. So this is a great opportunity to come back to that sensitivity. So um, again, the idea of allergy, the reason that 
uh, it's so important to separate that out as uh, when we're speaking of allergy, that's what can lead to the life-threatening reactions at anaphylaxis. Sensitivities we kind of generally use to describe a lot of the other symptoms that people can have with food. They can be uncomfortable for sure, but generally speaking, they shouldn't be leading to those life-threatening type reactions. And so with milk allergy, we are thinking about anaphylaxis, and this would be more likely in children. Lactose intolerance and other types of sensitivities to milk absolutely could be across the ages and maybe more common in adults. So lactose intolerance isn't exactly an allergy as we would normally think of it. Yes. So um, what happens in lactose intolerance is that your body is actually missing an enzyme that's supposed to help you break down uh, the actual dairy product itself. Um, But it's not an immune reaction that can lead to anaphylaxis. And you can take a pill, you know, lactase that contains the enzyme that will break down the milk. So very different kind of situation. Absolutely. You're listening to Dr. Edwin Kim. He's Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Kim is also Director of the UNC Food Allergy Initiative. And we are welcoming your questions. If you have a food allergy or know someone who has, if you've ever experienced anaphylaxis after eating shrimp, we'd like to hear from you. Our number, 888-472-3366. We are also taking email messages and Twitter. Our email is radio at peoplespharmacy.com, and you can reach us via Twitter. We're at People's Pharmacy. Dr. Kim, we just have about 30 seconds before we need to go to the break, but I wonder, can people develop an allergy at a later age, at maybe in their teens or their 20s? Absolutely, yes. So uh, again, classically, we think of the the elementary school kid, but we see plenty of folks that are older. Sometimes it's because that's that first time they've ever had the food. Uh, The example I do have, my daughter is also allergic, and she discovered this at a later age, really, because she had never eaten that tree nut before that age. And she was allergic to? Uh, Cashews and pistachios. Uh Well, after the break, we're going to talk about treatment of food allergies. Up until recently, the only thing to do was complete avoidance. Is there a way to teach the immune system not to overact? We'll get those answers coming up right after the break. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. 
More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs, providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. In our studio, we are joined by Dr. Edwin Kim. He is Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's also Division Chief of UNC Pediatric Allergy and Immunology and Director of the UNC Allergy and Immunology Fellowship Program. And our lines are open for your questions at 888-472-3366. You can send us an email, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. That phone number again, 888-472-3366. Dr. Kim, do we have any idea, and by that, of course, I mean, do you have any idea, why food allergies have increased so dramatically around the world? This is a question I get. This is a question I get in clinic pretty much every single day, and I don't know that anyone has a clear answer on it. There are a few different ideas. The one that is probably most commonly referred to is something we call the hygiene hypothesis. This idea that we are too clean as a society. Whoa, too clean! I mean, we've got all kinds of cleaning agents, in fact, sitting on our table right now because of COVID. We have what, Terry? Lysol disinfectant spray, Clorox disinfecting wipes, alcohol-based liquid hand sanitizer. I mean, we've we've really tried to clean up our act, and you're saying, oops, big mistake. Yeah, so again, it's it's completely opposite of what you would think. And, and the concept behind it is the idea that your immune system is designed to be able to fight off infections and things like that. Um, and when we're too clean and your immune system doesn't have those infections to be fighting against, it sort of default to more of an overreactive or an allergic. It goes type. looking for something else to exactly, do. Exactly, right. And so this COVID pandemic, which we're unfortunately still in, uh, is really going to sort of test us. It'd be curious to see because we are very, very clean on purpose to avoid COVID. And what kind of effects will that have on our allergy in a few years will be interesting to see. Now, I grew up on a dairy farm in Pennsylvania, and there were cow pies every place. And you couldn't help but step in them. And you would track stuff into the house. I'll bet your mom did not like that. No, she <laughs> she wasn't too 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 pleased with how um, how that happened. But but the bottom line is, a lot of people. 150 years ago were in a rural environment and they they had animals not just cats and dogs but they might have had chickens and so all of a sudden people are living in cities and it's a completely different environment exactly and it's uh, interesting you bring up the farming because that's something that folks have been studying right now is folks that live in farming type societies and sure enough what we're finding is less allergy there uh, probably because of exactly what you said of the cow pies and otherwise. Uh-huh. So well, we were training our, our immune system <laughs> in a way. <laughs> we are going back to the phones. We're going to talk to Sharon in Amarillo, Texas. Sharon, welcome to the People's Pharmacy. Tell us your story, please. I was so glad that I turned on uh, NPR this morning because and, and, I've wondered about this. Uh, when I was in college, I was peeling shrimp, you know, raw shrimp to prepare uh, a meal. And the, you know, it, 
they're raw, and so it was dripping on my leg, and um, suddenly I had these hives on my leg. Stopped peeling the shrimp immediately, hopped into the shower or bath, whatever. And um, ever since, well, I've never had any other allergies, but over the years, occasionally, um, when I had raw shrimp, uh, you know, I'd taken frozen shrimp or fresh shrimp, um, I handled it and touched my face. And sure enough, my lips and eyes started to swell. And so, um, and then later on, eating lobster once, or but hadn't cooked it yet, um, I, and actually, I think I ate it, and my tongue started to tingle. And it was questionable whether the lobster had cooked all the way. So what I was wondering, but once everything's cooked, in fact, I just ate a dozen uh, microwaved, from frozen to microwave cooked shrimp last night. Once it's cooked, I can eat lobster and shrimp just fine. So is there something chemically that changes from the raw um, state to the cooked state? And because I'm a nurse, um, over the years I've wondered, do I need to put down iodine you know, so if they're going to do, um, hmm. you know, a radiological uh, test on me for, you know, something, I had a kidney stone years ago. Well, Sharon, I have, like I have had a similar experience. So if I am peeling shrimp, I wear um, nitrile gloves to protect my hands so I don't break out in hives. Dr. Kim, how common is this type of experience? Well, uh, again, Sharon, that, that's another situation that we do hear about in the clinic. And um, first, trying to answer, we do think across all foods um, that cooking or processing can, in some cases, change the actual food allergen, how it looks to your immune system, and in some cases can make that food safer. So milk and egg are classic for this. If you can bake this into other foods, a lot of times people can actually tolerate it. In the case of shellfish, it could be that there's the cooking is changing something or it could be some of the other exposures, whether it's those, the fresh, I guess, juices, for lack of a better term, perhaps have some of the allergen protein that your immune system is seeing, that with cooking, that sort of gets washed away. Um, but your situation is something that we do hear about. Um, if I could take a second, I do want to speak to the iodine because I know this is something that uh, has been sort of a long-standing concern or question. And thankfully, in the last uh, bunch of years, they have uh, essentially debunked that. So iodine and and shellfish allergy actually have, are are not related at all. And so that is, uh, I think, a bit of good news. That is good news. That but is. people can be sensitive to iodine. Exactly. And if they are, then they have to find some other contrast material. Exactly. But it'd be specific to the iodine, nothing to do with the shellfish. Not the shellfish. That's good to know. Let's go to Mike in Bradenton, Florida. Hi, Mike. You're on the radio with us. Hey, thanks for taking my call. You bet. Question for Dr. Kim is um, my daughter was, uh, was about four or five. She was diagnosed with a shrimp allergy. Uh, hives, all, all, all the things that Dr. Kim mentioned. Uh, unfortunately, at the age of uh, 15, she was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. Uh, we spent a year up at St. Jude Children's Hospital, and she needed a bone marrow transplant. It's actually the donor, which is not normal either. But my question for Dr. Kim is, since she has a new immune system, basically mine, that I donated, would, should we look into maybe getting her tested, maybe if she has a shrimp allergy again, would having a new immune system make it possible that she could have shrimp. She, she loves the idea of having shrimp. She's never had it. <laughs> well, that is such an interesting uh, problem and unusual. 
Dr. Kim? Yes. Any, any ideas? Yeah, Mike, again, another, this is just a fascinating situation. And um, it is, again, when we think about the immune system, uh, this is something that uh, I do think does make sense to get checked because she is going to have a new immune system. And hopefully the, the sort of bad memory cells that would cause that shrimp allergy are no longer there at this point. Um, not a treatment, of course, we can offer to the general public, but this could be a situation where there is a nice benefit from that. So that would. would be fascinating. Mike, we'd love to hear back from you uh, once your pediatrician or your allergist has cleared this test. So please let us know how you make out. Uh, we also have another call, actually an email from Jennifer in Raleigh, North Carolina. My baby was diagnosed as allergic to breast milk at four months old. The allergist was very surprised at my child's strong skin test reaction. Please mention that babies can, in fact, be allergic to breast milk. Doctors told us that a person can't have an allergic reaction at the first exposure to a protein. Has that idea changed? Well, we've got a couple different things going on here. So um, great question from Jennifer. So the first point would be um, to the breast milk. Uh, We do know that breast milk has protein in it. That's one of the reasons we want the breast milk. So perhaps could there be some food or other protein in there causing that reaction to the breast milk? That is definitely a possibility there. Um, and then um, trying to remember these. The the second one was uh, first exposure. So yes. the idea is, and I think this is a common idea, that the very first time you're exposed to something, you're not going to be allergic to it. Right. So that uh, is actually essential or at the at central to allergies. So the idea is exactly what Jennifer said. Your first time your immune system sees a, something, whether it's going to be a food pollen, bee bee venom, whatever it is, uh, there should not be a reaction. What happens is your immune system sees it and then becomes allergic, or the term we use is sensitized, and it should be that subsequent, that second, third um, time you're exposed, where now the immune system is prepared and ready, and then that reaction happens. And so a long-winded answer could be possible for this, but really, uh, it really makes us think, where was that first exposure? Because uh, it must have happened prior, and we just didn't know it. Now, this brings up a question, Dr. Kim, of how do we know if someone is allergic? And when I say allergic, I don't mean just to peanuts or shrimp, but there are now a whole bunch of foods, and we'll ask you for some of the ones that are most common that you would see in clinic. But how would you, as a an allergist or an immunologist, test a child or an adult for that matter to determine whether or not it's a true allergy. Great. So uh, really, I think folks, whenever they think of allergy, they think of testing appropriately. So and many people have heard of skin testing and there's also blood testing to try to help us to diagnose allergies. But what I would tell all folks out there is it really always comes back to the story. So the idea is trying to make sure from the story, from the, from the patient, from the family, that it fits for an allergy. So what, what did they get exposed to? What was the symptoms? What was the timing? How were they treated? In our minds, we kind of have a uh, developed sort of a probability of how likely is this to be an allergy. And then really what the blood or the skin test does is tries to show us, yes, there is a part of the immune system that is there that would kind of connect the dots and confirm that allergy. But unfortunately, we know the test without the story and, and um, to combine with it is actually not a great test, and that leads to a lot of false positives. So it's the clinical experience of the allergist, it's the story from the patient, and then it's the testing. 
That's a great. Put them all together and you have a pretty good case. That's right. Tell us some of the most common food allergies and then other allergies that you see quite frequently because I'm sure some people like me are allergic to cats. Cats love me. They make a beeline for my lap and then I start to sneeze and then I'm having trouble breathing. <laughs> but luckily that's not a food allergy. No. <laughs> but just out of curiosity. So how? what are the most common food allergies that you run into? Sure. So I, I tell my patients you can theoretically become allergic to anything, but we do know that 90% of all the food allergy out there is made up of milk, egg, wheat, and soy. And then you have your peanuts, tree nuts, fish, shellfish, and then most recently, sesame has sesame. actually found its mm-hmm. way on the list. Now, tell uh-huh. us about the sesame story. We heard about it recently that they actually were putting sesame in foods. That didn't used to have it because they, they – they, and that way they would put it on the label so that it was declared um, because they couldn't uh, guarantee that – Having a food without sesame processed in a plant that also processes sesame would be completely clean of sesame. Right, right. So, uh, I mean, sesame is um, going to be a problem right now because I think all of us are trying to understand sort of how much of that is actually out there. And some of these strange kind of labeling and preparation practices that you mentioned, I think, are all being sorted out because uh, this is, as you probably know, a brand new thing where it's now being considered one of the top allergens. And so um, something our folks in the allergy world are watching very carefully. Let's go back to the phones. Heather in Hampstead, North Carolina, your comment or question, please. I don't think we've pulled her. Well, I did. did. Okay. But While I am you not try and get her, so. Heather, I'm going to go to Carolyn, who sent us a Twitter message. And Carolyn says, the elephant in the room, pesticides. I'm concerned that the massive increase in food allergies may be related to the things we're putting on our food. Specifically, many of our grains and legumes are sprayed with glyphosate as they come to maturity. Glyphosate is a known chelator and a known antibiotic. I didn't Hmm. know that. It seems to me that the continual bombardment of our digestive tissues with glyphosate-containing foods may play an important role, an underlooked role, in the current epidemic of allergy and autoimmune illnesses. Any thoughts, Dr. Kim? Sure. So um, this question from Carolina, another very common one that comes up. And uh, I'll just start up by saying never say never because we don't know the answer yet. So um, I don't know. But I would say that pesticides are a concern because there's the idea that food allergies have not been like this forever, but really in the last 30, 40 years. Um, and one of the things we know is the population continues to grow. So we need to be able to feed more and more and more people so these practices change. And so could there be something happening at the food production level? So things like pesticide growing patterns that are leading to this. One comment I would make here that makes this possibly less likely is the food allergy doesn't seem to be the same everywhere you go. So industrialized countries, lots and lots of food allergy. Third world countries and other places, not so much. And so, you know, why would it be distributed in certain places more than other places? And so the pesticides there doesn't always sort of line up. Okay. Well, let's go to the phones and talk to, uh, let's see if we can talk to Heather because I did have her ready to go and she has disappeared. I think Heather has hung up because she had a question about Uh, GMOs. What she wanted to know is 
um, when you have a genetically modified organism, for example, corn, and you've put a, a gene from some other organism, I don't know what they put into corn, um, if you were allergic to that other organism, could you then be allergic to corn? So uh, the question of genetically modifying our foods, uh, very similar to this pesticide question, does come up. And could that, again, be a reason why we have uh, more allergies that are out there? And um, here again, I I would have to say at that I don't think that that is the root cause of what we are seeing because, again, the places that are having more of the genetically modified foods and all um, uh, are... Uh, again, it's. I think it's just trying to understand how this would happen, and it doesn't seem to be the same across the different places. We, uh, we had a question about alpha-gal allergy, and the question was, can you get over it? Because this individual says, now I can eat meat again. I couldn't eat it for years, but now I can, and I don't have a reaction. The first thing I would say is great, great, great news. Alpha-gal is a very, very difficult uh, uh, allergy to to live with and to avoid. I think this is stuff that Dr. Platts Mills, Cummins, and Iwala are continuing to work on right now to understand what is sort of that natural history. What percent of people do we expect to to outgrow it? Um, we know there's a percentage of it, but how many we're still learning. You're listening to Dr. Edwin Kim, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is also Division Chief of UNC Pediatric Allergy and Immunology. Our lines are open at 888-472-3366, or you can send us email, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. That number again, 888-472-3366. When we come back after the break, we are going to ask Dr. Kim about treatment. When does a food allergy need emergency attention? And is there any way to help children get over a peanut allergy? There's something called oral tolerization. What is it and how well does it work? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. 
I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, offering plant-based nutrients in the form of cocoflavanols for brain and heart health. Online at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia. G-A-I-A herbs.com. Today, we're discussing dangerous food allergies. How can people with allergies avoid medical emergencies? What should we know about preventing them? We're talking today with Dr. Edwin Kim, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Kim is director of the UNC Food Allergy Initiative. And we're taking your questions, 888-472-3366, if you'd like to call us, or you can send an email, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. Dr. Kim, emergency. So someone is having an anaphylactic reaction. What do they do? Well, first, what does it look like? You have already mentioned hives. That doesn't sound terrible. What is anaphylaxis? Yep. So anaphylaxis is going to be sort of a more severe allergic reaction, and typically it's going to be a combination of different symptoms that can make it life-threatening. Hives is the most common of the symptoms part of it, but there's also going to be stuffed gastrointestinal-type symptoms, vomiting, severe cramping. Uh, The breathing-type symptoms, of course, are what we're most worried about, whether it's going to be shortness of breath or coughing or wheezing. Um, And it can even affect your cardiovascular system where uh, folks are getting lightheaded or even completely passing out. So when to go to the emergency department? Right. So the first thing I would really emphasize here is going to be that number one life-saving treatment for all allergic reactions is epinephrine. And this may be a little bit opposite of what a lot of folks are actually thinking about. Many folks will immediately jump to that antihistamine, that Benadryl type of medication. And really what I try to teach my patients is the opposite. Think of the epinephrine first. If it doesn't need the epinephrine, perhaps the antihistamine. So a parent sees a child beginning to wheeze, maybe beginning to cough, looking in distress, straight to the ED. Yes. If they have epinephrine, give the epinephrine first, then to the ED. And that would be something on the order of an EpiPen that you would keep in the fridge? Uh, So not necessarily in the fridge, um, but uh, not in extreme heat either. So just room temperature would be fine. We have a question from Tricia. I have had reactions, throat feeling like it's swelling, swollen lips if I have shellfish. That sounds kind of scary. What's going on? So uh, it sounds very much like this could be a a food allergy, an anaphylactic type of uh, shellfish allergy. So absolutely one of those things where uh, being assessed by an allergist to confirm this would be helpful. And once you've had the swelling and the swollen lips, don't assume that the next reaction is going to be mild. It could be life-threatening. Yes, that's right. And we've tried to look for patterns of if you have more than one reaction, what will they look like? And unfortunately, for most foods, it still seems to be unpredictable. So we always have to be kind of ready for that next one to be a big one. Now, we do want to talk about the new treatments to try to protect kids in particular, but I'm assuming that eventually they'll apply to adults as well from allergic reactions. We have a long, complicated email from Jenny. 
that might lead us into this, but Jenny is assuming that a lot of us already know all about this, and you're going to have to back up and explain all of it. So Jenny says, what new insights have you learned with SLIT treatment for peanuts for kids? Since she evidently has read or heard you present your uh, abstract in 2021 about this. And then she says, in your research, have you found any insights such as higher dose slit regimen leading to favorable outcomes or the ability to detect non-responders to slit? And then she has another question about slit, and which I can't read. So um, what is slit? And what should we all know about it? So yeah, so here I think as you as you say, I think it helps to back up. And so really what we're talking about here is what we refer to as immunotherapy. So the idea of giving small amounts of what you're allergic to, um, enough that your immune system sees it, but not so much that it has an outward reaction. And then really over time stepping that dose up so that you can bring that immune system up with you, retrain it or reteach that immune system to not be reactive. This is exactly what we do for allergy shots for environmental allergies, but we've tried to bring this over to food. The first version of this is actually oral immunotherapy or oral tolerization. Um, And then the SLIT that Jenny refers to is actually doing the same concept by sublingual. So putting the allergen under the tongue as opposed to eating it or as opposed to injecting it. And we've seen some really good things there as well where we do seem to be able to retrain that immune system to be less reactive and trying to understand how good can it be, can this lead to cure is where we are right now. You know, it's so fascinating. This sounds so similar to an old, old approach called homeopathy. Dr. Hahnemann, I think probably in the 19th century, came up with the idea that like heals like. And so he gave people very tiny little doses, barely noticeable, to try and well, I don't think he even knew what he was trying to do, but try and help the body overcome the problem. And it sounds like you're talking about very tiny doses, either under the tongue or or oral, that will then desensitize the body to whatever it is that's causing an allergy. Yes, that's right. And and again, allergy shots have been going on for over 100 years. So folks back then kind of had the concept in mind, not the science behind it, but now the science does seem to back that up. And we go to Johnny in... Fort Worth, Texas. Have we lost Johnny? Hi. Johnny, are you there? Hi, Johnny. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, Yes, we can. can. Please go ahead. Yes, I have a problem. I've had a problem. I developed this problem after after I got out of the service the first time uh, with with catfish, gallops, and oysters. Eating either one of those three things will put me in the hospital within about 30 to 40 minutes. And I'm, it's interesting listening to you. I do have the. I've had to go to the hospital because uh, it, I have the digestive problem, the, the, the in, in the in the intestinal problems that you're talking about, and I have the breathing problem, like almost like my throat closed up, especially with scallops and oysters. But uh, if that's in, and, and with catfish, and it's strange. It's so strange. So I, I can't eat around with what other people eat with fish. I can eat shrimp, but I can't eat any of the other things. Uh huh. But I just wonder if you heard, if y'all have ever had anything like that. And I'll hang up and listen. Okay, thank you. And, uh, and Johnny... Johnny also asked about are there treatments? Yeah, so uh, Johnny, Johnny, your story is classic for that food allergy. And it kind of points to the idea that your immune system 
is very, very precise. So it's great for bacteria and fighting infections. It's super specific. And it turns out for food, it's the same. So uh, it's not uncommon to be allergic to, say, one fish or one shellfish, but be okay to others. And that's where, again, an allergist can come in with their testing to really specify what are the things that you need to avoid, what are the things you don't. So Johnny knows that he cannot eat oysters and he can't eat catfish. Is there anything he can do? Is there any treatment? Is there any medication? Is there any way to desensitize? Right. So um, we are, again, this concept of oral or sublingual immunotherapy, we are trying to work these up for all the different foods. Most of the research right now has been on peanut, not because peanut is the only food allergy, but really kind of looking for a model where we can make sure that this idea works. Um, And the hope would be that we can quickly sort of bring this out to other foods. But in this case, what I would say is when we have folks that are allergic to multiple foods, that adds another layer that we are very much trying to see. Are there can we do the same oral or sublingual? Or are there other treatments that we should be thinking about to be able to treat multiple foods at the same time? Now, I think when a lot of people consider food allergies, they're thinking, okay, hives, uh, maybe some problems breathing. But Johnny was talking about digestive tract. And we've heard that a lot with alpha-gal allergy, that, that tick allergy to meat. What's going on in the digestive tract? Yeah. So um, again, when I'm thinking about our classic food allergy, the digestive type symptoms I would be thinking about most obvious would be the the recurring vomiting. So not the one time just, oh, I don't like this. It tastes funny, but really that sort of not can't stop uh, type of vomiting that can happen. Or again, the severe cramping that some folks can get um, uh, from that. Longer-term digestive symptoms would be a different type of reaction to food. So this might be someone that for the next two, three, four days maybe has some uh, GI discomfort and needing to use the restroom and things like that. So separating those two things out would be an essential piece of what the allergist would do. Now, as we have been learning, a lot of the immune system actually is centered around the gut. So if people have intestinal permeability, are they more susceptible to food allergies? So this is a a question that we are trying to answer right now. And so I would start on the skin side. So there is a thought that folks who have eczema, which is essentially a leaky barrier of your skin, are higher risk for food allergies. So could the same idea on your intestinal side be what's happening, that things that shouldn't be able to get past your intestine to your immune system are? So act very much something that we are studying right now. Well, and we're going to go right back to the phones, but let me ask about skin. If you put, for example, if, if, if you put a cream or a lotion on your skin and maybe this is the first time that you've ever encountered oat protein or sesame protein, do you then increase your risk for having an allergic reaction, a food allergy when you eat it? Yeah, this goes back to Jennifer's question way before when she was asking about the breast milk. And uh, absolutely, that is a thought that we have right now. Um, Essentially, what we call is this dual allergen hypothesis. The idea is that our GI tract is supposed to be okay with food. I mean, everything that we eat um, is foreign to our bodies, but most things are okay. And so the concept is if we get exposed to that food in some other way outside the GI tract first, could that be the thing that makes us allergic? And then that first time you eat it, you see an outward reaction. So I think your scenario is something we're definitely studying and, and worried about. 
And we go to Charleston, South Carolina. Josh, please tell us your story. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. I love the show, and uh, today's topic brought up something that I've been curious about for almost two decades. Um, So I was wondering if temporary food allergies can be caused by a lot of stress. Um, When I was in college, about 21 years old, I'd had my first child and uh, was working a couple of different jobs, full-time student, uh, didn't get a lot of sleep, had uh, had a lot of, of things going on. Uh, I'd sit up in bed every night, uh, nosebleeds, things of that nature. And uh, one night after eating some pizza, I broke out in hives all over my body. And um, I had no idea why, and I was trying to figure out, you know, what some of the things I'd had throughout the day were that were perhaps different uh, than what I was used to, uh, because pizza I was definitely used to. Well, um, the next day I ate some milk chocolate and I broke out in hives. Um, And then I had another dairy product the following day and broke out in hives again uh, at the time, had had no insurance and no money, uh, so I was never able to go to a doctor and see what was going on. But uh, eventually I cut dairy out and no more hives. Uh, until about two weeks later, uh, when I got tired of not having cheese, uh, went ahead and ate some pizza, no hives, and uh, never had a problem since. So I was just curious to see if uh, anyone had heard of anything like that. What it's do you an think? unusual story, Josh. Thank you. Yeah, Dr. Kim? Yeah, Josh. So this is, um, uh, a, well, hopefully you're past all of that at this point. And I think your your scenario brings up a couple different points. The first one would be when I get stories uh, of different foods and patterns that don't quite fit, one of the first things I'm thinking about is do we know that it's a food or is it possibly more something internal to the patient, their immune system or to their skin? Um, there is something that we call chronic urticaria that is sort of essentially outward rashes that can happen for really any reason at all, um, very often is temporary. So one possibility is that's what you were experiencing at the time. We connected it to foods, but maybe that wasn't it. But I do want to take a chance to speak to, we know uh, a term we have been recently using in food allergy is cofactors. So we do know that there are some things that when you combine that activity plus the food, it does seem to mess with your threshold and allow a reaction to happen that wouldn't otherwise Stress and exercise is one of these, uh, being sick, being having fever, um, sometimes taking non-steroidals like your plain old ibuprofen or even alcohol. And so there, there is that scenario you describe, um, but also it could be a totally different disease that we're thinking about. We have a question from Pam by Twitter, and Pam says, My question for Dr. Kim is this. My daughter, who is now 27, last year developed an allergy to raw apples. She developed mouth itchiness and swelling in her lips. She tried it again. Same reaction. Besides avoiding apples, is there anything else she can do to enjoy this fruit? So um, Pam brings up a a really great, uh, very common scenario. This is something almost definitely what we call oral allergy syndrome. This is something I actually suffer from as well. The good news here is this is highly unlikely to become anaphylactic. Uh, And really what is usually happening in this case is these are patients who are actually pollen allergic, and specifically birch tree pollen in the springtime. And what we know is that the pollen from birch can look very, very similar to your immune system to the proteins in a lot of different fruits, apples being classic. 
And so that's where sometimes we can have this sort of crossover, but it doesn't become the anaphylaxis. We have just about a minute or two left. I wonder, Dr. Kim, if you can tell us what's on the horizon. What are you and your colleagues working on as treatments for food allergies? Yeah, so uh, again, the immunotherapy uh, is really where the most research has been. And so we are trying to fine-tune that to really make it work better, but also to make it practical and safe. And I think we have to find that balance because living with food allergy is hard enough. And then for a treatment to actually make it harder is not what we're looking for. So keeping our folks safe but making it easy. But we are also looking at other types of medicines. Um, We generically speak of biologics. These are, again, medicines that hopefully can get to the specific parts of the immune system causing the allergy, and maybe we can sort of dampen that and and be able to treat not just one allergy but multiple food allergies at the same time. So you are hopeful that Johnny might someday be able to eat oysters again. We are absolutely hopeful for that. And... um, Let's remind people that if they begin to have any signs of food allergy, and that would be hives, swelling of the lips, breathing problems, what do they need to do? Again, if they, if they know they have a food allergy and this is what's happening, epinephrine is really the thing that they want to be thinking about. That will work within a minute or two and keep them safe and then find their way over to uh, medical help. So talk to your doctor about a prescription for an EpiPen, EpiPen or some other epinephrine. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for listening and for calling in your stories. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Edwin Kim. He's an associate professor of pediatrics and medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, division chief of UNC Pediatric Allergy and Immunology, and director of the UNC Allergy and Immunology Fellowship Program. He's director of the UNC Allergy Initiative. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Pamela Alberta and Ayasi Chinflu provided technical assistance. Al Wodarski engineered the People's Pharmacy theme music, is by B.J. Lederman. The People's Pharmacy is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements, supporting cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs, providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at GaiaHerbs.com. Today's show is number 1,329. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. You can subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our website on Monday morning. If you go to peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter. If you want to learn about drug alerts, or any other health news. It's an easy way to stay on top of the breaking stories. We also want you to um, send in your questions. We will forward a few of them to Dr. Kim. He's been a really good sport today. And Dr. Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast 
takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.